Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a sermon series titled His Story, Our Story. Rather than a series of unconnected events, the Bible is one story, it's the story, and it's also our story. Thanks for joining us. Well, several years ago, Peggy and I got addicted to a uh, TV show. You might remember it. It was called Lost, if you can see that up on the screen here. And really, I think what made Lost so great, I mean, the whole idea was there were some people stuck on an island, and you were trying to figure out why they were there and what the whole thing was. It was all a big mystery, and every week you would leave the show going, oh, I can't wait to figure how this is all going to end. And then you got to the end of the series. I can't remember how many seasons it was, but it was a lot of seasons. You got to the last episode. Everybody was so excited that everything was going to be revealed, and it was like a total dud, like the worst episode ever. It wasn't the ending that this great show deserved. Well, today we come to the end of the grand story of the Bible, and far from being a disappointment, it is an ending that is going to be well worth the wait. If you haven't been with us, let me just remind you where we have been as a church family. For the last 12 weeks, we have been in a series called His Story, Our Story. And again, the big idea here is we wanted to take an overarching look at what the story of the Bible is. And what we've been discovering together is the Bible is not 66 individual books. It's one book telling one story, God's story. And amazingly enough, the other thing we've discovered, it's a story that God is inviting all of us to participate in as well. And so if you've been with us, we started the story, of course, where you're supposed to start in the beginning with creation in Genesis chapter 1. And each week we've made our way throughout the Bible, and today we come to the end of the story. Now we're actually going to talk two more weeks after this about this series, but we come to the end of the Bible today in our series. So now even though the end hasn't happened yet, we're still waiting for it to happen, we're actually given a little preview of what it's going to be like. Throughout the Bible, in fact, we're giving little tidbits, little previews of what the end is going to look like. You know, when you go to a movie today, you know how you have to sit through like 30 minutes of previews before you get to the actual movie? Well, we're giving little previews in the prophets and in the teachings of Jesus and in other parts of the New Testament what the end is going to be like. But maybe no other part of the Bible shows us the end that's most thoroughly described in the last book of the Bible, which is the book of Revelation. And this morning, I am going to completely explain Revelation to you in 35 minutes or less. Because Revelation isn't confusing at all, is it? Of course, I'm joking. We can only scratch the surface together this morning. But here's what I hope you understand by the end of today. The last book of the Bible doesn't only tell us how the story is going to end. It also confronts us with our place in the story. While the details of this awesome and mysterious book are often debated... You know what? The main idea has never been debated. It's too bad we get caught up in the details sometimes. Because the main idea is pretty clear. If you're following on your notes with me this morning, the story ends with God restoring the world as it is meant to be. That's what the last book of the Bible is all about. The story ends with God restoring the world as it is meant to be. In fact, let me just remind you, this is what the story has always been about. From the very beginning, when sin entered the world, in Genesis chapter 3, when we talked about that, what has God been doing? He's been about the business of redeeming and restoring his creation once again. He wants to make things new. He wants things to be restored, and so he's been working towards that so all of us, all of creation, could once again thrive and live under his reign and his rule as the rightful king. 
And so this morning, here's what I want to do together with you. First, of course, we just need to spend a little bit of time uh, seeking to understand this book called Revelation. And then second, I want to dig down with you into the last two chapters of Revelation because it's there we get to see the end of the story. And then last but not least, of course, we want to talk about how we can live out this story today when we have the end in mind. Before we do that, though, would you mind bowing once again so we can pray? Lord, I'm always aware, and in fact, actually, I'm not always aware what a privilege it is to be gathered here right now, that we have no fear of persecution to open up the Bible. While we have brothers and sisters around the world who would die for this opportunity, sometimes I just kind of take it for granted, but we don't want to do that today. We're grateful that we can gather together in this place. We're grateful that you still speak to your people. We're grateful that we can have a copy of your word sitting in our laps right now. We're grateful that your spirit is with us. So open our eyes today to discover how we fit into the end of your story. We pray this with great expectation. Amen. So let's talk a little bit about this book called Revelation. In fact, let's start by reading the very first verse of this book, which I have printed on your notes there. Would you read it out loud with me? It says, The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. So right away, we learn a couple things here. First, this is a divine message from Jesus himself. He's delivering it to the Apostle John on behalf of all of Jesus' people. That's us still today. In order for us to understand how the story is going to end and how we can live in mind with the ending. In the final chapter of this great story, in fact, God is going to pull back the curtains and reveal his plans for human history. Plans that have always and will always center around the person of Jesus Christ. Now, you don't have to get far into the book of Revelation until you realize this is a bit of a strange book. We see a colorful description, in fact, right away in chapter 1 of someone like the Son of Man, it says. And he has this dramatic presence among the seven churches in Revelation 2 through 3. And then in chapter 4, the scene shifts, and we're actually given a glimpse of what it looks like in heaven right now. And there's multitudes of angels praising God around his throne. So far, so good. But then it starts to get really weird. You start reading on and you see things like locusts with human faces and tails that sting like scorpions, huh? A woman clothed with the sun, a beast with seven heads and ten horns. We learn about Babylon, the mother of prostitutes, and so on and so forth. Revelation is a very, very strange book, but why? Why so strange? Well, one of the reasons is that Revelation is different than any other book of the New Testament because... It combines three different types of literature into one book. You know, we're constantly confronted in our lives with different types of literature, and we know instinctively how to interpret these different types of literature. I'll prove it to you. I'm going to show you some examples of different types of literature on the screen. Here's one. What is that? It's a text message. I'll let you even read it. It's kind of a funny one. But we, we automatically know... We automatically know how to interpret that. Somebody says LOL in a text message. I know what they're saying, right? Here's another type of uh, literature. Some of you are going to be looking at something like this in about, uh, about an hour, right? It's a menu, and I know how to understand and interpret a menu. Here's another one. 
It's just a church announcement. Maybe you got that in your email box this week and you understand this is an invitation. And then here's one last one. This is the most confusing one. When you first look at it, it's like this is just a bunch of numbers. And then when I realize, oh, it's a phone bill, I know how to interpret it. I interpret it as I owe a lot of money for my cell phone. Now, we instinctively know when we see that how to interpret those types of literature, but here's what's interesting. Revelation combines three kinds of literature into one book, and that's unusual. And so I think that's part of what causes us so much confusion when we read it. So let's talk about the different types of literature we see in Revelation. First and foremost, friends, if you're on your notes, Revelation is a letter. It's a letter, just like most of the New Testament. A letter to who? It's a letter to seven first century churches in Asia Minor. A letter to seven first century churches in Asia Minor. Actual churches that actually existed. In fact, here's a map I'm just going to show you of where this letter was supposed to be delivered. Those are the seven churches in Revelation. By the way, it's a single letter. That's why we call it Revelation, not Revelations. Now, because the number seven symbolizes wholeness or completeness in the Bible, we have to understand that this letter to these seven specific churches was also intended to function as a letter for the universal church, which includes churches still today. And so, yes, the message of Revelation extends beyond the first century, but I will just say this. Any person who's going to interpret Revelation must always keep the original audience in mind if they want to properly understand it. Any approach to Revelation that ignores that this is a message, a letter to the seven churches in Asia Minor is going to distort the meaning of this book in potentially harmful ways. Okay, that's number one. Number two, Revelation is clearly described as a prophecy, as a prophecy, but notice, with prediction and proclamation. A prophecy with prediction and proclamation. What do I mean? Well, in the biblical books of prophecy, including books like Revelation, they always include, yes, prediction about the future, but also proclamation about the present. Prediction and proclamation. Uh, let me try to describe that to you. One of the spiritual gifts that God has given me, I've shared this before, is the spiritual gift of prophecy. Now, that does not mean that I have the ability to predict the future. Although I did do that with the Cubs winning the World Series several years ago. You remember that? <laughs> Honestly, what the gift of prophecy means for the church is that I'm able to kind of look at culture sometimes, and God gives me a word to speak to the church body to help us to stand firm. That's what the gift of prophecy is. That is why sometimes I'll have people come up to me and we go like, well, that was such a convicting message. Well, that's probably the gift of prophecy. Now, surprisingly, biblical prophecies actually stress the second of the two elements more than the first. Proclamation more than prediction. In fact, in the very places where Revelation is described as a prophecy, readers are commanded to obey the prophecy. Now, that can only make sense if we understand prophecy as a proclamation about the present and not just a prediction about the future. I mean, think of it this way. How could you obey a prediction? You, you can't. Now, Revelation certainly has a lot to say about the future, and I don't want to downplay that, but it's speaking primarily to churches about how to live here and now. Too often when we study this book, we lose sight of that. Right? We get so wrapped up into the prediction aspect of it that we lose sight that more than that, this is a proclamation about how we live as God's people. 
And then last but not least, Revelation is an apocalypse. We hear this word all the time right now, right? Movies and books all about apocalypse. What does apocalypse mean? It's really quite simple. It simply is a term that means to unveil what is hidden or to reveal. Get it? Revelation. To reveal what is, un- what is hidden. You can read apocalyptic literature in the Old Testament in the books of Daniel or in the book of Zechariah. It's a type of literature that communicates through visual images or symbols. And listen, here's the purpose of apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature in the Bible opens up the curtains for human beings to be able to get a glimpse of how God sees history playing out. That's the purpose of apocalyptic literature. We actually get to see history from God's point of view. I tried to figure out a way to kind of explain this in common language, and I thought about the difference between how parents see things and how kids see things sometimes. And so here's two examples. Here's one, parents see a bed, kids see a trampoline. Here's another one. Kids see energy drinks, parents see poison. Right? Apocalyptic literature just helps us to see history from God's perspective instead of our limited perspective. Now, along with understanding that those are the three types of literature, it's also extremely important that we understand the historical situation Revelation was written in. Most scholars date the book to A.D. 95 when Emperor Domitian was ruling Rome. So that means it was written probably about 65 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And in that time, the Christian faith had spread all throughout the Roman Empire. You can read about it in the book of Acts. Jesus promised the early church, remember, that he would return. And you got to understand the first Christians lived every day with expectation that that event was right around the corner. But as time went on, it didn't always become easy for Christians to follow Jesus under the rule of Rome. In fact, the book of Revelation leaves the clear impression that some Christians are suffering for their faith and that many more should prepare to suffer in the near future. Now sadly, as we learn in chapters 2 through 3, a lot of these churches that are undergoing this kind of suffering begin to conform to the world around them. They begin to compromise their faith at their expense to faithfulness in Jesus Christ. You can read in Revelation 2, 3 letters Jesus writes to the churches, some of the most famous chapters in the Bible, right? He says things like, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth because you're a lukewarm church. Not all the churches in Asia Minor are standing firm. In fact, when faced with the possibility of suffering, many of them are compromising their faith, walking away from Jesus. And so basically, Revelation is a reminder to God's people that despite how it looks, Jesus is still Lord. Jesus is still Lord. During times of oppression and persecution, man, the righteous suffer and the wicked seem to prosper. And it begs the question, the question the psalmist asked, the questions I'm sure these first Christians asked, the question we might ask still today, is God still sitting on the throne? Is God still in charge of history? And Revelation says, despite how things may appear to you, Caesar is not Lord. Satan is not Lord. Jesus is still Lord. And he is coming again. And he is going to restore his creation and establish his eternal kingdom once and for all. The evil powers of this world will not have the final word. That's a good place for an amen. 
And so to summarize, if you're following on your notes there, Revelation comforts those who are persevering in loyalty to Christ in suffering. It's a message of comfort for those who are persevering in suffering. But let's be clear. It's also a warning to those who are compromising their faith. It warns those who are compromising their faith. In other words, the entire book of Revelation should be read as a reminder to the church to urge us to remain faithful no matter what we face. There are going to be hard times. Can I say that again to you? There are going to be hard times following Jesus. But the ultimate reward, the ultimate ending, will make it all worth it. And what is the reward? Well, with that, let's turn to the very end of the book. This is where the story of God ends, in Revelation 21 and 22. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of the black Bibles in the seat underneath you there. You can find this on page 1004 of those black Bibles. If you're trying to figure out where it is in your own Bible, I'm going to make it real simple for you. Turn to the very end, and somewhere around there, you'll find Revelation 21 and 22. Now, just as a reminder, so we don't lose the big picture, what have we been doing the last 12 weeks? What we talked about with God's story, right? God, since Genesis 3, has been at work to restore what was lost. And here, in Revelation 21 and 22, that's exactly what is going to happen. Now, I got to tell you, before we get into it, one of the things that absolutely blew me away this week, I haven't spent a ton of time studying the end of Revelation, but as I began to study it this week, I was mind-blown at the amount of connections there are in the beginning of Genesis with Revelation 21 and 22, really Revelation 19 through 22. In fact, if you look on the back of your notes, I just want to encourage you this morning. I may have got a little chart there for you of all the connections between the beginning of the story and the end of the story. I just want you to see how beautifully this story all fits together. Thousands of years written apart. And yet it's one cohesive unit. You can't make this stuff up. You just can't make it up. And the whole big idea here is, if you're on your notes, in the end, God restores his original intention for creation. In the end, God restores his original intention for creation. And just like in the beginning, it's going to be good. It's going to be very good. So let's look a little bit at Revelation 21 and 22, starting in verse 1 there. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. What John sees is nothing less than a new heaven and a new earth. Can you imagine this? One day, our earth is going to have that new car smell to it. Of course, when you read that, what is it supposed to remind us of? The opening words of Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so the opening words of the Bible connect with the very closing words of the Bible. But this new creation, it will not be tainted by any residue of sin anymore. It is a new heaven and a new earth. It goes on. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. This image of a new Jerusalem, of course, calls to mind the old Jerusalem, which was the city of the great kings, the city of the temple, the city where God's presence was said to dwell with his people. But here John sees a new Jerusalem without taint, without corruption, dressed as a beautiful bride. This new Jerusalem will not be defeated by the Babylonians, 
nor by anyone else for that matter. It will exist forever. And I'm just going to pause here because sometimes I think when we read this, we miss the significance. This is a profoundly social or communal vision, isn't it? When we think about spirituality in the West, so many of us think of it in terms of individual terms. But notice at the end, the people of God, people from every nation, tribe, tongue, color, will be gathered together in one place as one community, just as he intended it to be. Now would you read verse three out loud on your notes with me there, it says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. That's so cool. Just as God promised the Israelites that I will be your God and you will be my people, here we're told that that will actually become literal. Just as God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve, so too will he walk with his people. It goes on. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Last week, our family had the opportunity to go visit Washington, D.C. over spring break. And one of the things we visited was the Holocaust Museum. And I don't know if you've ever been to the Holocaust Museum, but if you have, you understand it's probably the most sobering thing you can experience. It is simply unimaginable to me how human beings can inflict such incredible evil on other human beings. And so then I open up this to prepare for this week, and oh, I can't wait. All the brokenness from the fall will be set right. No more holocausts, no more evil, no more pain, no more cancer, no more kidney diseases, no more broken relationships. If you're on your notes, God will heal all that was broken from the fall. God will heal all that was broken from the fall. Verse five, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, and I love this, one of my favorites, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Take it to the bank, write it down. Just as I promised to Abraham that all nations would be blessed through you, I promise that one day, one day, there will be a new creation, it is a sure thing. As sure as the Minnesota Vikings never winning the Super Bowl, you can bank on this happening. Now skip down to verse 22, because I want you to notice several things that will be missing from this new creation. First, I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Now this is pretty cool. I wish I had more time. I don't, but let me quickly explain. Earlier... God gives the dimensions of what this new Jerusalem is going to look like. And any Jewish person reading that would immediately have thought about, because it's describing basically a cube, they would have thought about the most holy place in the temple. Because the most holy place was also a cube. And just think about how cool this is. There's no temple in the new city, in the new Jerusalem. Why? Because the whole thing is the most holy place. The whole thing is now open to all who have access to the Lamb. Not just the high priest once a year. But to every follower of Jesus, we're all welcome into the most holy place. Second, what else is missing? Verse 23, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and the lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. 
On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Friends, not since Adam and Eve have human beings been able to stand in the glory of God and live. No one can see my face and live, God says. But in the new creation, that will no longer be the case. It won't be a problem for us anymore because we too will be made new creations. In fact, we already have if we're in Christ Jesus. I'm a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. And because of that, I can stand in his glory and live. Finally, notice what else is missing. And this is the sobering part of Revelation. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. As wonderful as these promises are to those who have been washed by the blood of the Lamb, there are also many dire warnings for those who haven't done that. The book of Revelation is very strong on this point. There can be no impurity in the new creation. There can be no pride, no greed, no hate, no betrayal, no jealousy, no sexual immorality. Above all, friends, above all, no idolatry, which is the root of all sin for us. All who will be in the new creation will be completely and utterly and totally and joyfully God-centered. Why? Because there can be no other way. And yet the good news is all can come and drink from the fountain that God has provided in Jesus Christ. All can be washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. Finally, let's just look at what's promised at the end of the story, the very end, chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Again, Straight up from Genesis, right? Here is living water. Here is the tree of life. No longer are we commanded to not eat from the tree. Now God says the tree is open for you. Take and eat. Be healed. All the strife and enmity and anger and hate that has existed among the nations can now be healed in the tree of life. As verse 3 says, no longer will there be any curse. The curse is reversed. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. I don't know what you picture or your imagination of as heaven. I've said this before, but if your imagination is that we're going to be sitting on clouds playing harps together, then you don't have much to look forward to. But that's not what's promised here, friends. Notice, we're going to serve him. Just as Adam and Eve were called to represent him and to serve him and to be his image bearers on this earth, somehow, some way, God has got a work for us to do. And he's going to equip you to do that work. And you're going to find joy in that work. And you're going to serve him. And it's going to be incredible. Of course, we've already started that work now. That's why we say, will your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? But if you're falling on your notes, as co-heirs with Christ will join God in ruling his kingdom. As co-heirs with Christ, will join God in ruling his kingdom, his perfect kingdom. Finally, doesn't get much better than this, verse four. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. 
They will not need the lamp of a, the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. You will see his face. That's the greatest blessing of all, isn't it? If you're on your notes again, above all, we'll know him face to face in perfect fellowship. The communion that God desired in the beginning with Adam and Eve is finally realized for those who have been redeemed in Christ. No more Satan, no more sin, no more suffering, no more death. God will live with us in his fullness and we will know him face to face. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we looked at this last fall. For now, right now, we only see a reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now I can only know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. This is the ending to God's story. Having destroyed his enemy and rescued his people, he takes his rightful place as king, and he invites us to participate in his kingdom with him. Praise God. Now, as we close, I want to talk a little bit about what it means, what this ending means for our story today and how we live out our faith. And I just got to say, one of the questions I always ask every time I preach is, why do we need this message? Why do you need this message? And I got to be honest with you, as I thought about that question this week, my first initial answer was, I'm not sure we really do need it. Let me say it differently. I'm not really sure that we yearn for this day as much as we probably should. What I mean as first world Christians in the United States, I'm not sure that these verses mean as much as it might for those in other parts of the world who are suffering for their faith. We have it pretty good here. I mean, yeah, we have our aches and our pains. Yes, we have our diseases and those kinds of things, but I've got it pretty good. And so maybe these words don't have the kind of impact I think they're meant to have for us. Now listen, you talk to Christians in other parts of the world, like in Sudan or Iran, oh, they yearn for this day. They stand firm in their faith because of the promise of this day. And then I kind of got rebuked by one of my friends. And I thought, well, let me think more about this. And as I began to think more of it, I began to wonder, and this may be the prophetic part of me coming out a little bit, is this perhaps why, I almost left this out of the message, but I wonder if we need to hear this. But is this perhaps why that God may be allowing the church in the United States to be be going through a time of refining right now? Is this why? While we're not facing the same suffering and persecution as these first century Christians, or like some of our brothers and sisters around the world, I believe our faith is being put to the test. And if it hasn't already, I bet you it will. And so here's what I want us to think about. Like when those days come, and they're going to come, Can I suggest to you that it's this promise right here that is going to help us stand firm in our faith? How? Well, let me suggest three things. Number one, the story's end provides hope that God will keep his promises. No matter what, we have hope that God will keep his promises. We've talked about this before. I'll say it again. Biblical hope is not wishful thinking. It's not, I hope the Vikings win the Super Bowl someday. That's wishful thinking. It's assurance based on the character and the nature of God. We are anchored in a real hope. Why? Because just as God promised that he would send Jesus and he would redeem his people, and he did that in the cross and resurrection, we can know for certainty that one day he will completely destroy evil. 
and he will make all things new. I think of the cross and resurrection as a bit of a down payment to what God is promising us here. We can trust God to keep his promises. Why? Because he's always kept his promises. He's always kept his promises to his people. And so that means all the hardship and struggle and temptation, the pursuit of holiness that we go after, is all going to be worth it. All that God promised will be made true. I don't know when. I don't know why we get so wrapped up in trying to figure out when this is going to happen, to be totally honest with you. I'm not sure that that's what God wants us using our time for. I think he wants us to be using our time to prepare others for when this day is going to happen. But until that day, we're told to stand firm in hope, no matter what it is we face. A couple weeks ago, I visited a dear lady I've known since the time I came here at the church. She's 90-something now. Her name is Helen Stites, and if I say Helen Stites' name and you know Helen Stites, you can't help but smile when you hear Helen Stites, because Helen Stites was just one of those spark plugs. She just had that glimmer in her eyes, and so I was sitting with her, on her at her bed. She can't even move anymore. She can't get up. She's suffering, and we were talking, we were praying. I asked her, how can I be praying for you? How are you doing? And she looked at me, and she got that spark back a little bit, and she said, I have Jesus, and so I have hope. And I'm like weeping like a baby at this point, right? That I could have that kind of faith, that I could have that kind of hope that one day I will see Jesus again, even in the face of great suffering That's what we have. That is what is going to help us to stand firm, no matter what we face. Hope. Second, the end of the story helps us adjust our expectations about the Christian life. I can't talk more strongly about this. God never promises followers of Jesus that they're going to be free from struggles or persecution or honestly even martyrdom. While Revelation makes it crystal clear that we will never experience the judgment of God, it also makes it clear that we can probably expect to suffer some kind of persecution or hardship precisely because we follow Jesus, and that's what Jesus experienced. Over and over again, the message to the churches in Revelation 2 or 3, Jesus tells them, hey, don't expect to be exempt from suffering or persecution or trials. Here's what I want. I want you to endure in those times. Sadly, though, this is the opposite message, I think, of what many of us hear today, right? Have you heard of something called the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel? That's no gospel at all. Simply says that God wants to bless you, and you just have to name the blessing you want, and then you claim it, as if God is some sort of a vending machine. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't bless us. He has blessed us, has he not? He has blessed our family. He has blessed many of our families. I'm not saying that God doesn't give us material blessings. He does. But we're not entitled to them. We can't just put a quarter in and say, God, you owe this to me. No. Revelation says, change your expectation of what it might be like to follow Jesus. Sometimes it might be hard. Third, the story's end reveals what it means to overcome. Like what it really means to overcome. When God pulls back the curtain, we see, what do we see? That we're still at war. We're still at war with the forces of evil today. That's reality. Yes, through his life and his death and his resurrection, Jesus dealt a death blow to sin and Satan, but we still live in enemy territory today. And so we're still going to have trials and tribulations. 
I've shared this before. I think the best way for us to think about this is we live in between D-Day and VE Day. If you know anything about World War II, right? On D-Day, essentially, the battle was won. But it wasn't until two years later when VE Day that the war was over. We live in between those two times. And so this means in between that time, Jesus calls us to overcome. What does overcome mean? It means things like, I'm getting this straight from Revelation. It means reject false teaching. Abstain from sexual immorality. Resist idolatry. Refuse to compromise even in the face of pressure. Positively overcome means have faith. Do good works. Pray. Engage in joyful worship. Persevere. And as we learned last week, overcoming means participate in God's larger mission to the nations by embracing your calling. Your calling, as we saw last week, as a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests. So to summarize, to overcome just means following Christ as Lord with our whole life until the end of our life or his return. If you're on your notes, following Christ as Lord with our whole life until the end of our life or his return. It's just wholehearted, wholehearted devotion to Jesus and his mission. So that's the story. It's the end of the story. Let me just sum it up this way. The story ends and it reminds us that Jesus is still Lord. No matter what it looks like for your life right now, God will be victorious over the powers of evil. No matter how things appear, God is in control. Don't lose hope, brother or sister. One day, all things will be restored as they were meant to be, and we will live forever with him in a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation gives us reality from God's perspective so that we can live faithfully today as his people. As we close and we prepare for communion, let's consider this question together. Will I remain faithful until his story, our story, ends in victory? Will I remain faithful until this story ends in victory? Let's pray. Well, Father, you certainly did not need to reveal what the end of the story is going to be for us, but you did. Because you are a God of grace, you are a God of love, and you are a God who wants his people to be able to stand firm in the face of no matter what comes our way. And so we're grateful to be able to say that we can know for sure that the story is going to end in victory. Victory for you and victory for us. But until that time, you've given us a work to do. There are some people who don't even know this story. Equip us to be, as we learned last week, your church. A church that rests on the promises of God, a church that stands firm, a church that is wholeheartedly devoted to you, to your word, and to your works. God, if there's anybody here this morning that doesn't know what the end of their story is going to look like, I pray today that you would do something in their heart, that they would hear the invitation to come and drink from the water of life, to eat from the tree of life. And now as we prepare for communion, we're reminded that one day, this simply what we're doing now is a foretaste of what's gonna happen, where we're gonna be invited to your table and we're gonna feast together. So let us look forward to that day as we remember what you've done and what you're going to do. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.